Welcome to the Project Zion podcast. This podcast explores the unique spiritual and theological gifts Community of Christ offers for today's world. Welcome to another episode of Project Zion Podcast. This is Brittany Mangelson, and I'm going to be your host for today. And today I have on a good friend. And actually, uh, when I say good friend, I mean good friend. It's been a minute since we've been in touch. And so we just chatted for 40 minutes before... before we started recording. So I am thrilled to welcome uh, my friend Molly Bagley on the podcast. This is going to be a Chai Can't Even episode, which is where we talk to adults, young adults in Community of Christ who really grew up in the church and just uh, let them share their story and share their stories of of uh, discipleship formation and then their hopes and dreams for community of Christ. So Molly, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I just have to say, you know, we, um, there's kind of this running joke about, um, I don't know if joke is the right word, but like who should be on Chai Can't Even, like who, you know, who is considered a millennial or who is considered a young adult? Cause we're kind of in this weird transition phase where we just, you know, have been a young adult and now we're maybe just a regular adult in the church. But I have to say that Molly is wearing a Daria shirt, which <laughs> I didn't mention <laughs> before, which is like the perfect perfect uh generational marker for this like millennial exennial you know like born and raised in the 80s and 90s and so um yeah that that's the era that we're going to be talking about a lot today so I'm thrilled I'm excited I'm gonna stop talking and Molly why don't you uh just introduce yourself really quick just let us know where you're at what you're up to um and then we'll dive on into the bulk of the interview So um, I'm currently in Atlanta, Georgia. I moved here in 2019 to attend Cambridge School of Theology um, at Emory University. I have just completed the coursework for my Master of Divinity. I graduate tomorrow. Um, We're recording this on the 6th. I graduate the 7th. Um, I'm extremely excited. It was three years of a lot of work. So right now I am just enjoying not having to do things and not having to worry about turning things in and and just enjoying my time. And I am, I grew up in Pensacola, Florida, attending the North Pensacola congregation. Um, Originally I was, I was born in independent, but we moved to Pensacola mid eighties. So um, that's pretty much what I remember. I'm currently at the Atlanta North congregation. Awesome. Thank you. And I, uh, when I realized that tomorrow was graduation day for you, I felt a little guilty asking you to do this podcast, but I know that it's been a fun experience for me so far. I'm assuming that our listeners can tell by like my super chattiness in my intro. And I'm just like really happy to be here. So this is, this is going to be good. So Molly, let, uh, let's just dive in. So you were born and raised community of Christ. So you said you were born in independence and then moved to Pensacola when you were young. So I am curious to know what your church experience looked like growing up. So did you attend youth camps? Were you like mentored in your congregation? Um, did you feel like you were a burden or did you feel like, you know, you were really part of the community? Just, just talk about growing up in the church. So yeah, so up until I was at 
Graceland in when the name the name change happened when I was at Graceland. So growing up was still RLDS. Um, I, as a young child, um, just thought it was too long. I would try to shorten it, and I, a couple of times I dropped the reorganized, and I realized the problem with that one day I was at daycare, and my daycare was right next to the LDS church in Pensacola, and so I said the name of the church, but I dropped the reorganized, and they're like, oh, that one right there, and I looked, I was like, no, 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 that's not my, that's not my church, <laughs> so I realized uh, that that is an important word um, in the name, but I still felt it was just so long and complicated to say as a young kid, but, um, I did grow up going to camps. Um, I, yeah, first camp I went to, I was eight. Um, so started right away and I went almost every summer. And then by the time I was a teenager, I was basically spending my summers at Bluff Springs campgrounds. <laughs> you know, I would be, I would be a counselor junior camp, a CIT junior high. I would attend senior high camp as a, as a camper. I would go to reunion and, um, the youth at my, when I was younger, we had a really sizable youth group or number of youth group, um, attending Sunday school with, uh, the same group of people. As we got older, some moved away, some just kind of didn't attend as much as teenagers. It got much smaller. I think there were like three or four of us really attending regularly. So I actually started working with the younger kids pretty early on. Um, I was probably 15 or 16. And um, on Wednesday nights, I would teach the kind of the youth class um, on Wednesday. So I really was mentored in that, in that aspect, um, as far as people seeing um, where I had gifts in those areas and working with kids and the youth and, and um, and really kind of empowering you. Like you don't necessarily have to be like an adult to do this. Like you're, 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 you can do this. And so I was mentored in that, in that aspect, um, quite a bit. And, um, yeah, when I was looking at the outline of the questions, like thinking about, I was thinking back on my camping experience. And I think that was probably one of like my favorite things about growing up in the church was our camps and reunion. And I mean, there were summers, you know, I would, I wouldn't even go home between camps. We'd just do our laundry there and stay overnight. And we'd just be there when the next camp started, you know, cause we were just, that was our summer. That was, that was it. That was, and that was really formative as far as teaching um, leadership and spirituality and developing with my friends that way. Cause at our camps, we would have all the way from like Panama city over to Louisiana. Um, so there was always a, a really large group of us, um, got smaller as we got to senior high camp, but that made our senior high camp so nice and like intimate. And you just really knew everybody there. Um, I really enjoyed that too, but I never, um, never, I don't, I don't think I ever felt like a burden. I think at times because I was so into like, I would be the one that would kind of be like, okay, well, you can help with the kids during this business meeting. So like as a teenager, I didn't necessarily participate in that part of the church. Um, I was always like helping with the younger kids so that the adults could be in there. So I didn't necessarily feel like much of that part of the church. That's something I noticed that, that changed. Um, when I became an adult, we definitely did not, we, 
encouraged our teenagers much more to participate in the business part of the church and the importance of that. Um, so I, I think one thing I wish I would have had more of a focus there in like seeing myself as part of the working part of the congregation and the opinions in that way mattered. But I also don't feel like that necessarily hindered my development as a church member or anything. That makes sense. And I think that it's, it's interesting seeing like my own kids, my own, you know, 11 year old twins. And I have an eight year old who's getting ready to be baptized, but this transition of like being, you know, a consumer of church, but then recognizing that when you're baptized, I mean, you have voice and you have vote and you have, uh, you know, your opinions, you are a member of the congregation. And so you do have opinions that can be considered. And that, that transition of, you know, being the person who, uh, gets ministry as a child at camps at things like that. And then going from this member that has more of like a logistical buy-in, if you will, to the congregation, that's something that I'm like, Oh, should I be explaining this more to my kids? You know, should they be playing, uh, or paying attention more to the business meeting rather than, you know, just like running around in the back, like actually, you know, they're, they're 11, like they could, they could have some, some sway in this. So that, that's, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that that, I don't know, transition is something that I'm assuming a lot of people go through as they're uh, growing up in the church. Cause I mean, I didn't have that experience, but it's interesting watching my kids now go through that. And I'm like, Oh yeah. Being a parent in community of Christ, I'm supposed to like teach you how to do the thing. And and that's, yeah, it's, it's interesting. (laughs) So I also think it's interesting um, that you recognized at a young age, you know, that there was the LDS church that was next to your daycare, but like, that was not what you were. So what was your general understanding of, you know, the similarities, the differences, our shared history with the LDS church? So my dad is an elder and um, I'll just throw in, I'm not related to Del Bagley. My dad is Joe Bagley. Um, that's like the number one question I get when I meet people. Um, <laughs> but anyways, he's an elder and very, was very knowledge has always been knowledgeable about church history. And so I was also a curious kid. And so um, like, I grew up knowing that knowing about Joseph Smith and then after Joseph Smith was, was killed that um, there was the, Brigham Young led the group West, but that our church believed he had set apart his son and waited. This was my understanding as kid waited for Joseph Smith, the third to kind of come of age and to be willing to lead the church. And so that is how we were different and understanding that that split, you know, happened in Nauvoo. And, you know, I, you know, I remember being told about the, you know, Palmyra and Kirtland and, and Nauvoo and then and then to independence and so uh, understanding about that the area I grew up in has a staggering number of Southern Baptist congregations um when, when I I attended seminary through Graceland as well and um one of our assignments um was to do kind of a survey of our of the makeup of our area, like where do the poor people live? What's the majority religion? And I think in one in in my county at the time, so this was like 2015, uh, I think in one county there were like 98 Southern Baptist congregations. Um, 
so uh, with the name, there was definitely this, um, I definitely heard you're in a cult a lot. I remember growing up and hearing, um, we had a group that would participate in like ecumenical sports teams. And there were teams that would not pray with us um, before the game. Or I remember going to a youth event with a friend and um, her father like talked, you know, our parents met, you know, the first time we had like a sleepover and things like that. And um, I knew that her father was not a fan of our church because I was allowed to go to events at their church and to attend their church. And she was not allowed to come to youth events at my church. Um, and so before uh, events, my dad would kind of prep me. Um, he would be like, you know, this is, you're going to be asked if you're saved and here's a way you can answer that question. Cause I didn't, you know, I didn't grow up with this concept of, yes, I was saved. I went to the, I was saved at this point. You know, it was, I'm saved through the grace and sacrifice of Christ on the cross kind of thing. And so he would help me to kind of preform some, some answers, not, it sounds like putting words in my mouth and I don't want to give that impression, but it was a way to help me um, to enter into these conversations with people. And so I remember going to an event and when it came time for the youth group to go inside and plan a worship activity, I was not allowed to go. Um, I stayed outside with someone filling up water balloons for water balloon volleyball later and was grilled on my faith. Um, so I did have those kind of experiences. Um, and, um, and I don't think that the impact of that hit me really until I was an adult. Um, and like kind of the knowledge of, of what was happening there and the fact that it was my church and that we were so in, in people's minds, so closely connected with the LDS church because of the name. Um, and the use and knowing that the book of Mormon was in the canon and, and that kind of thing. Uh, so. That is so interesting. And I mean, to be clear, tragic, I mean, to have to be able to be prepped like that as a little kid, but it also feels relatable. And I, I think it's really great that your dad was able to frame your faith in a way that would empower you instead of othering you, right? Instead of like making sure that you had a target on your back. Um, it was a, it was a sign of protection and, uh, to be able to give you words and language to articulate your faith that wouldn't just automatically, um, other you, I think is actually brilliant parenting, uh, and something that I wish that I guess <laughs> more parents on, you know, like both quote unquote sides of the religious aisle, um, the belief system of, you know, literal, literal, maybe even fundamentalism. And then, um, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, maybe just pure secularism, uh, could, could come together and understand that, uh, at the end of the day, like these are just kids on a playground, right? Like these are just, these are kids. And so putting our own religious baggage on them, um, is harmful. So I, I, yeah, think that your parents were, uh, very wise to be able to help you articulate, uh, your faith in a way that would, would allow you to foster relationships, um, while you're growing up. So, so 
as you moved into adulthood, so you said you went to Graceland. So how did that look? I mean, were you, so you were active in congregational life through, um, growing up being a teenager. And then did you continue that once you got to Graceland? I'm curious to know, you know, did you feel pressure to only date people within community of Christ or were you pressured to remain active? Um, what kind of Graceland experience did you have? So I, I loved my, my Graceland experience and I really came full circle theologically during that time too. did a lot of breaking down my own theology and reconstructing it and leaving with, you know, know, I went in with strong faith, maybe a little bit of naive faith, but uh, definitely in, you know, I I, I never really had like a major theological crisis then or anything. I always, I wanted to learn and I loved learning. And I, uh, one of those people that like when something like I have ADD, so I have that superpower of hyperfocus. And so when something interests me, I'm like, all right, this is my life. And so, and so I started my mind, I was an art major. My minor was church leadership and I was taking some, so I was taking some religion classes and leadership classes. And so, you know, I definitely had that experience of, um, I like what my freshman year, it's kind of rambling, but my freshman year, I was in a communion service, and that's the first time I discerned that I had a call to ministry. It was just communion was being served, and I just kind of had this awareness that someday that would that would be my role. I would have I would serve in that capacity. And then shortly thereafter, Graceland became a, a recognized as a congregation and a delegation by World Church, and had a delegation that's at um, conference and things like that. And the campus ministers could process priesthood calls, and I was not called at that time. So that led. I entered into um, a period of a little bit of disillusionment at that point, um, wondering what I was or wasn't doing that wasn't bringing about that call. And so I did drift away, like, um, you know, there were regular services on campus and activities, and I did drift away from attending um, church regularly um, for a while, and then kind of got to a point in my life when I was like, okay, wait, I'm making some decisions that aren't how I want my life to go. So let me circle back around to being more involved again in church. And I never was completely separate. Like I would still participate in services. I served as a chaplain, um, actually became chaplain of the hall. I was on economy. I'm my like, so at semester, my freshman year. And so I did it for spring semester, my freshman year, and then fall and spring, my sophomore year. And so and I was still involved that way, but trying to figure out what involvement and leadership look like when you're not priesthood was part of my journey. And, and that continued well after Graceland as well. But so that was part of my experience. I don't think I ever felt pressured to like date anyone that was just only in the church or not. I knew it would be easier because it was always this, because growing up where I did, it's like, there's always this label, how do I explain this to people? But usually people, when they come to Graceland, have some, they don't know a lot about Community of Christ, um, just because there are some excellent programs at Graceland, just academically and sports related and things like that. But generally people developed some understanding of the church, so you didn't have to explain too much. Um, 
so, but I also, I think I only dated like two people when I was at Graceland. I kind of was um, always the friend, never the girlfriend syndrome in high school and college. But um, so I don't, but I don't think I felt that pressure there. And I don't even think I felt pressure to be involved or not involved in the church activities there. I didn't want to lose that connection, but I think it was also good for me to have that little bit of space that I created for myself to kind of grow um, a little bit more while I was there. And then also while I was there, I was when I did one summer, I did internship as a tour guide in Nauvoo. And that, that point was probably one of the points where I really kind of continued to fall in love with my church, um, really dug even more into the history and to how we developed to where we are today. And so um, that's where that process kind of started for me and that continued. And that, I did a lot of that exploration when I was at uh, seminary through Graceland as well and looking at you know where we've come history-wise and theologically to where we are now. Um, and so that kind of started when I was at Graceland um, taking doing that internship and taking classes like restoration studies and restoration scriptures uh, with Bill Russell and things like that. So I know that you said that growing up, you had, you know, some understanding of, of church history, but as you became a young adult and were at Graceland and taking these classes and being in Nauvoo, was it challenging to learn more church history? I mean, did it spark any sort of faith crisis in you or, you know, make you question the roots of our movement in a way that, that, uh, felt threatening? I don't think at that point that came along more later on. I mean, I definitely learning more about Nauvoo I definitely had thoughts of like, well, that kind of went off the crazy train a little bit, but just some different teachings developing during that time. Um, but um, I think it helped, that helped me to start be, to be critically aware, but really my kind of crisis with that didn't hit until I was attending the community Christ seminary. Um, later on down the road, actually. And there was, there was some space. So I graduated from Graceland in 2006 and I did not start attending seminary until 2015 is when I um, started there. I put them intentionally and unintentionally <laughs> right after I graduated from Graceland, I was uh, diagnosed with an autoimmune disorder. So there were some years of kind of trying to get that under control and then working and then feeling like I was in a stable place. And so that's when I went back to school for uh, my master's in religion. And that was the point when we're learning more about scriptural development and church history that I started to wonder, okay, what do I do with Joseph Smith in the Book of Mormon? What do I think about this? And, and how does what I think, like, if, if I think that the Book of Mormon is a product of Joseph Smith and a product of its time and maybe not necessarily from a, directly from a set of golden plates. Um, what does that do 
for people who have a very strong testimony of the Book of Mormon. Um, that's where I struggled. How can I reconcile my beliefs with these really powerful experiences that I grew up hearing of people who um, really delved into the Book of Mormon and who um, have strong testimonies of its impact in their life um, and, and wondering about that. And um, that's where my crisis kind of started. And I'm not sure it's I'm not sure I can answer that question even today. I think that's still something that I kind of wrestle with a little bit. Yeah. Thank you for being honest about that, because I think that, you know, as, as wonderful as it is to be in a church that allows for such a broad range of perspectives on the Book of Mormon or church history uh, and our theological development as a movement it's really, really difficult for individuals to kind of find themselves and place themselves on that spectrum of belief, especially when, um, you know, I've heard the term legacy member, when you have generations uh, of your family invested in this and invested in this story. And I relate to that as well. I have, you know, I'm a legacy uh, restoration person myself. And, and it is difficult, right? Because I mean, our grandparents and great grandparents, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, cherished this text, cherished these stories and had really powerful experiences with them that we heard about and people in our congregations. And, and so then to, um, be presented with new ideas about the text, um, a, a different way of potentially looking at it. It's really difficult to try to piece apart what is history and what is myth and what is tradition and what is just all these different ways of looking at it. And then where is God speaking in the midst of this? And what does that mean for our community today? So I just want to acknowledge that while we often, you know, while I often celebrate the diversity of belief in community of Christ, it can be really difficult to get to that point where any individual is, uh, I guess, confident in claiming their place and their belief. And I still feel like I'm all over the map. And so I appreciate hearing you say, you know, like, I'm still not quite sure what I think about all these things because yeah, there's, there's just so many different ways to look at it. And I think it's so easy to get stuck in the, it's either all true or it's all false. And, um, I think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle and, you know, that's, that's a difficult journey and a lifelong journey, I think to take. So thank you for being honest about that. You're welcome. I believe you know, when I think about the Book of Mormon and about Joseph Smith, you know, I, I love this vision of the church that, that Joseph Smith started. And I think it's this beautiful vision of Zion. One of my favorite passages comes from Doctrine and Covenants 36. Um, you know, they were people, uh, you know, of one heart and one mind. And there were no dwelt together, and there were no poor among them. I think it's such a beautiful vision of Zion. Um, it's one of my favorite things. And I grew up um, with my dad telling me about Enoch City and telling me about that. And 
And I think, and so that was part of that, you know, coming into that, okay, well, what do I still think about this? What do I think about the Book of Mormon? What, what's inspired? Um, and so I do believe that there is inspiration. I believe that, that Joseph Smith is absolutely inspired by God to start this church. And I love it. I love it so much, but it is this, there are still points that I struggle with. It's like, what, do, what do I really think about that? And do I know? No, I don't. <laughs> I don't know that yet. <laughs> but I mean, you're in a community with a lot of people that don't know. So <laughs> yeah. that's the thing. I've always, I've always known that I had the freedom to ask questions and that I had the freedom to explore these things and that, um, the conclusion I came to wouldn't necessarily be wrong. Like, you know, the person sitting next to me may not agree with my conclusion, but that doesn't make them wrong either because we each got to where we are through very personal and authentic experiences. Mm, Yeah, that's beautiful. And a perfect way to sum up that tension that we were talking about with that spectrum of belief. So uh, it's something that is so different from my childhood, but I appreciate it so, so much. So thank you. Thank you for highlighting that. So Molly, I'm curious because, you know, I having grown up in a community that did not necessarily empower women with a lot of leadership skills or, you know, skills to be able to communicate or to have conflict resolution and just being builders of a community. I'm always just really struck by the folks in my generation that grew up in community of Christ, because there seems to be um, maybe a gap in my understanding of, or in my skill set of how to effectively build community. And so I'm curious as you grew up in the church and as you were mentored and felt like you were, you know, part of this decision-making community, um, in what ways do you think that you were empowered to essentially be an adult, like a functioning adult? I just feel like Community of Christ does a really good job at teaching humans how to be an adult. So can you speak about that a little bit? Any, any sort of like leadership skills you feel like you learned growing up? So I've, as I've been at Candler, which is a, a Methodist institution um, uh, sponsored by the Methodist church. And so, but there are, it's multi-denominational. Um, I've realized what a unique experience it is to grow up with no memory of, like, I don't remember a time in the church when a woman was not at the pulpit. Um, and what a unique experience that is. I have friends who are incredibly triggered when they are in a service and a, and a man is at the pulpit preaching um, because of harmful experiences that they had growing up. And I don't, I don't have that. You know, I, they, I don't remember a time when a woman couldn't be a leader in our church. And so, you know, it's hit me recently that there is an entire generation who, who don't remember that they just don't, they don't know that what it was to not have, have women in leadership roles. Um, and so like, I always knew that I, that that one day could be part of my life, that I could have a leadership role in church if I, if, if things went that direction and if that was part of my calling. And 
I had some great female models of that as well. And both in, in my family and in, in my congregation, um, who really took the time to mentor me. We had a youth leader, um, when I was for a while, when I was in high school and, and she really took the time to, to empower, to really kind of empower me as far as my involvement in church and seeing where, where I had like I had value. I always felt valued and that what I had to offer was important. Um, and, and in that way. Yeah. I absolutely love hearing that because again, I've brought up my kids a couple of times, but just knowing that they're also part of that generation of just like, not really having a recollection of a time where women weren't at the pulpit. Uh, we joined community of Christ when my girls were really young. And so it, it gets me excited to know that they're not going to carry around that same baggage about their gender that I have carried. Um, and then knowing that, yeah, this, this whole generation and really, you know, we're getting into like second generation of community of Christ folks that just understand that women and men are equal. And um, I, I really appreciated that you pointed out that um, because of how you grew up, um, you're not triggered by men in the same way, right? Um, because you haven't had that those experiences where you felt excluded by men. And so it's not like you have to be defensive around men and, you know, like fight for your place at the pulpit because it's just there. And so I really think that that speaks to uh, the beauty of of the healed relationship between men and women that has come since 1984 in community of Christ. And it also makes me excited for our, you know, further progress with the LGBTQIA plus community and uh, recognizing that we have a lot of work to do still, but, but if we look at the healed relationship between men and women, and we, you know, use that as a model for the straight community, straight cis community with the queer community, it just, it gives me a lot of hope. So thank you for uh, lifting that up. And, and I have that exact same hope. Like I, cause I um, am part of, I'm one of the facilitators with Harmony's Welcoming and Affirming Congregations Program. And um, it, it did, it hit me last week, actually, that we are on the cusp of, of having a generation that doesn't remember when an LGBTQ plus person couldn't be on the pulpit. Um, we're on the cusp of raising a generation that just knows that as part of their church and as part of their church culture. And I think that is just wonderful. And it gets me so excited um, to be doing that work with Harmony and also the work that our church is doing and working for full participation for all persons. Um, and so it gives me a lot of hope. Like, I hope that, I hope that your kids have that memory of they're always like, there just never was a time when, when, when someone was excluded because of their sexual orientation or their gender identity. Yeah. It makes me excited. We are on the right trajectory and I am mm-hmm. thrilled for that. So Molly, uh, I'm assuming that, uh, you know, you're, well, (laughs) 
I know you're a bit of a church nerd like myself. So (laughs) seeing the value in a religious community is something that I think you identify with, but can you, can you speak to that a little bit and having just completed your MDiv, what do you see as um, being a benefit for the community at large, um, as far as religious communities go. I mean, what are the benefits of having religion still be a thing, especially considering that our generation is stereotypically, you know, moving away from religion? Um, Mm -hmm. what do you think the benefits are for keeping religion around? I think that at its, at its best, at its like optimal best religion and religious communities can be safe spaces. Very unfortunately, more they have not been, but I think at their best, that's what they should be. And those, those places where people can come and find community with people that have similar values that even if you didn't grow up in that same tradition. Um, I think that it provides a structure in, in your life that is different from, from others. You know, my, my experience and my decision-making is colored by what I learned growing up, what I've learned from the people in my, in the churches that I have attended and what I can bring back to that. Even in, even in assignments, when I would be working on stuff, I, d- I did this a lot at Graceland, but when I'm working on my MDiv, my thought was always, how can I bring this back to the community? Um, okay, so I'm writing this ethics paper on, environment, on environmental degradation and, and how our churches should respond to this. How can I bring that back locally? How can I bring that to the community? that kind of thing. And so it's provided that kind of structure in my life. And so I think that it is very beneficial. I also, I mean, and, and I think even religion, religion, and even just if you don't identify with a religious community, but foster a sense of spirituality, that there's something bigger and this acknowledgement that there is something bigger in the world and creation um, than we are. I think that changes your perspective on your place in the world and your your place as part of this huge, massive, wider creation. I really love how you said, you know, that everything that you've done in your education, you try to tie it back to the community, right? And I think that religion and theology and just being open to other people's belief systems really breaks down the barriers that so often just get in the way of of progress, right? And so I, I really like that you acknowledge that religion at its best can break down those barriers and, and move things forward um, while acknowledging that religion is often not always at its best. And so uh, to have ministers that are thinking about theology in a very practical way and how can we make the world better in our um, context uh, is something that I think is super, super important. So thank you. So with Community of Christ specifically, and maybe you kind of already answered this, but what keeps you involved in church life today? 
Um, I mean, why Community of Christ? Why do you stay involved with this denomination in particular? I cannot imagine my life without it, number one, because it's just always been there. Like I, one of my favorite things is I always feel like I can go into any community of Christ congregation. I'm either going to know someone or know somebody who knows somebody, someone, but there's also an inherent familiarity um, across the board um, that doesn't necessarily come in when you, and yet, and yet, and yet our congregations are incredibly diverse, but there is like this inherent sense of, of community. And I think that comes from being a smaller denomination. But, um, you know, when I started attending Candler, I did start thinking, do I, you know, do I, do I need to look elsewhere? Am I in the right place? And I just kept coming back to, no, this is home. Um, I, you know, I, like I toyed with the idea. It's like, well, there would be more um, career opportunities in, in ministry if I were Methodist or Lutheran or Presbyterian, but I, I don't know. I just kept coming back. I can't, I, I don't know if it's because this is where I'm ordained and I don't know how to go about using that elsewhere, but I also like, when I would think about looking else looking elsewhere or looking at a different church I would just become so profoundly sad um because you know as a movement we have changed and developed so much over over time and I'm excited to see where we will go in the future um you know I've I've heard from some people of, of old of other generations that we are a dying church and I have just decided that I'm just here until the bitter end <laughs> I'm not gonna, I don't particularly want to leave it. And I think that our, our theology and our sense of community um, and you know, I think it is honest that it's the work I've seen this church do um, with the LGBTQ issues and social and, and LGBTQ rights and involvement and full participation, um, that journey that we have started and are continuing. And then more recently with these conver the USA conversations on nonviolence that we've been having and giving space for our community to talk about that and to share about that together. That's something that's uh, unique that I've, that I've noticed as far as like when I'm trying to explain to people this idea of this continuing revelation tradition that we have that is so much more than just adding to the doctrine and covenants. It has to do with our whole communal discernment process and that no decisions are made in this church without the consent of the body. And, and so that whole sense of that fosters that broader sense of community that we have our local communities, but we are also part of this larger body um, working together for these common goals, giving space for people for this faithful disagreement. Um, you know, we talked last night was the final USA session. And that was one of the things that we started with was Blake going with Blake Smith going over that those principles of faithful disagreement and and giving that space for people and saying, we may disagree on this, but 
we are still, we're still a community. We still love each other. And we, we give each other that ability to have that exploration. Ah, I absolutely love everything you just said. <laughs> Relate to it so much because everything from the feelings of when I have thought about leaving religion or when I've thought about leaving the restoration tradition, there's just this overwhelming sense of sadness that has come over me. Um, and, and I've taken that as a sign that I need to stick with it until the bitter end, you know, like you said, and, and I, I have been so moved by these conversations on nonviolence and attending last night, it was just this, I had this overwhelming feeling that what we're doing matters. Like it actually matters. And if we want to make the world a better place, we have to stay in conversation with one another about important issues that matter. And that's what we're doing with these conversations on nonviolence. And so while I recognize that community of Christ is not the only place to have these conversations and to make this progress towards equality and peace, it's a really good place to do it. And when it's part of your DNA, like literal DNA or your spiritual DNA, I think that it just comes naturally. And so I relate to you. I just can't imagine being somewhere else. Um, I know that when we were first looking into community of Christ, I had this idea of, you know, maybe we'd go check out other churches, but it just felt like coming home and it just continues to feel like staying home. And I think for me, if I were to go to another denomination and, um, you know, join or whatever, it would feel like I was a guest in someone else's home. And I just don't know if I could find that sense of home, like I do in community of Christ. So even though I am a convert, I definitely relate to what you were saying of like, this is just who I am. This is just me. And I think it's really beautiful because we are doing good things in the world. Even if we're a little small church, I mean, we're doing, we're doing good things. I mean, if, if there's one thing that I have learned, it's before we can think and act globally, we have to do it locally. Mm. You have to have a local intimate knowledge and experience. And then like, like if you take the environment, one thing um, I've read a lot lately by Sally McVeigh, um, who's an ethicist and theologian, and um, she writes um, on environmental issues. And in her book, Super Natural Christians, it's super comma, natural Christians, and it's how we should love the earth. And she writes that in order to really love something, you have to know it and you have to know it well and intimately. And so one of her recommendations is getting to know your environment that you're in. And I think that applies for a lot of things um, before we can start thinking bigger about uh, nonviolence and, and where you fall on the, the spectrum. I think it starts small. And then we move outward and, and these ripple effects happen. So um, I like, I like to think of like these conversations as us starting locally with these issues, and then we can go bigger and we can, as individuals, we can think bigger. 
And I think that that is so important when we look at the history of Christianity and colonialization and the real harm that has been done to other communities because, uh, you know, white European American Christians just assume that we can put our culture on everyone else. But this idea that that theology and change really needs to be a local reality before it can, you know, grow and expand and um, take other cultures into consideration. I think that that also is such a beautiful struggle that we have in Community of Christ. And just, um, you know, from going to the two world conferences that I've been at and seeing how the conversations are truly coming from various places in the world. And it's not just, you know, a small handful of people in Jackson County, Missouri, who are making decisions for everyone that um, the voices from all corners of the earth where the church is are being part of the conversation. And so, uh, yeah, that that's another element of community of Christ that I don't know if um, other denominations see as much just the the grassroots nature of our denomination, I think is really, really important. So what are your thoughts on what's tough about being a millennial in community of Christ, or I guess just in church in general, or the world in general, but really, because I know there's just so much crossover. Um, And I think you've already uh, mentioned a little bit of it, but, um, yeah. What are, what are some of the challenges that you see as being a millennial in community of Christ? So I'm a, as Elijah's comedian, Eliza Schlesinger would say, I'm an elder millennial, one of the wizened because I was born in 83. So I'm like right on that cusp. And we have, I mean, this, and in a way, this is true for every generation. We've seen so much change, but like, I mean, there have been so many moments when I'm like, I am so glad that smartphones were around when I was in college or high school or that Facebook was not a thing that I didn't have to deal with all of that. Um, but I feel like millennials get a bad rap. Um, a lot of the <laughs> and, and so, yeah, that's like, I, I used to get super offended when people would call me a millennial and say, no, I'm not a millennial. I'm, I'm not that. And, but what does that, what is that? What am I rebelling against? Like, what am I saying? No, I'm not that. Um, and so, yeah. Um, I think maybe just combating that, that, that kind of negative image that millennials have, have gained of not wanting to work hard and not wanting to, be involved in more than a like a cursory level or being too involved and um you know being too involved in too many things or things like that you know i think that as a as a generation millennials are can be very focused on um working for change and working to change like like, okay, yes, this works, but can we, can we tweak it and make it work better? Or can we, um, can we change these kind of expectations of what this certain thing should look like? Uh, is it, is it a tradition because it has value or is it a tradition because we've always done it and not everyone's open to asking those questions. 
because they're very comfortable in their traditions. Um, and so when we come in and say, you know, I think that it might have greater value if we do it this way, that's come up against some pushback um, and that change. But I think, you know, in order to not be a dying church, we do have to continue to work and change and um, kind of roll with with new ideas and new leaders. And, and yeah, like at, at times there's been like this idea of like, the, we, need our, we need our younger generations to take up the mantle and to lead our church. And then there's people who maybe don't, aren't quite ready to let go. And so we kind of come up against that and that can be frustrating. That's, yeah. Absolutely. I know that I, I know that you are not the only person <laughs> in our generation that has expressed those concerns and um it's hard it's it's hard because the world has changed so much and the needs of the church have changed so much and the uh expectation of religion in general i think has changed and so we're kind of all in this transitional phase and nobody really knows what the future is going to look like and then you throw in a pandemic and you throw in financial issues and you throw in all of these things that it, um, it's just tough. There's, there's really tough issues that I think we're all wrestling with and, um, yeah, it's tough. Yeah. I think, and I think that like, you know, especially some of our smaller congregations may need to change how things are done. They may need to change how things operate. And that's, very difficult to to navigate and and to be thinking about okay do we now that now that we're moving into a more digital age do we need a building mm -hmm. do 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 can we have a more digital campus for our congregation where we gather at specific times maybe once or twice a month maybe we rent a space and we put our financial resources to that. Can we financially support this? Can we find, you know, what can we financially support? Um, and that is a, it, it's a, it, it's a huge change from our traditional idea of church. Um, it can, so there's concerns of, um, will people, if we're not meeting every Sunday, will people still come? Will they just be online? How could we, increase value of digital content so that people still feel like they're getting spiritually fed how can we still make it feel like a community but be but but also you know be a viable and be a viable and vital congregation and not lose membership but also sustain ourselves in a way that so we don't have to completely shut down a congregation so um, that's a that's a really hard place to be um, in thinking about those things, and it's a, a big transition. Um, I think that you know one thing I noticed when the pandemic started was that a lot of our a lot of our areas are already set up to do that. Though you know you look at like um, the Beyond the Walls community, um, and you know we had for our congregations that are in more rural areas that there's more distance between your congregations maybe digital more digital content gatherings were already a thing when the pandemic started and so in some ways we were set up well 
to do that because those changes have already been made and are beginning to be made. So how do we expand that into other areas and, 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 and give our congregations the resources to do it well? Absolutely. I actually was super proud of Community Priced at the beginning of the pandemic, just seeing how quickly we were able to change and adapt and um, in some ways continue to do what we were doing before. I mean, we had uh, opened up the way for online communion before the pandemic hit. And so we were already just kind of like right there. And the pandemic just really had us say, okay, we're doing it. We're doing the thing. We're prepped. We're ready to go. You know, we can at least have communion together. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, the way that we were able to shift, I think, uh, taught us a lot of lessons that I hope that we can carry into the future for sure. Mm -hmm. So speaking of the future, you know, what are, what are some of your hopes for community of Christ and hopes for, you know, the next generation of, of youth, um, who are being formed as disciples in the church today. And, and what, what hopes do you have as a church as we, um, move forward and continue to change and adapt, um, for the, the different needs that the church is going to have into the future? Um, reiterate what I said earlier, you know, about hope for, you know, a generation that doesn't remember a time when, an LGBTQ person was not on, could not be in the pulpit. You know, it's heartbreaking to discern that someone has a call for ministry and know how powerful their ministry would be, but also know they are prevented because of who they love or their, uh, their gender identity or something like that. That is heartbreaking. I hope that we have generations that do not know that heartbreak of watching their friends be denied ministry um, because of that. I want, I want our youth that are growing up now to know we are small, but we can still make a difference. We can still have an impact that even though our congregations are, might be smaller than other congregations that are our church over our church numbers overall, might be smaller, but like we're small, but mighty. Like I, I, we have, there's so much potential and I want, I want them to know and have confidence in that potential and have confidence in their contributions. Like I want them to know that they are valued and they are important and they are vital parts of, of community of Christ. And I want it I want our church to be its best and be a safe space. I want people to know that our, our congregations are safe places to come, that you will be loved and you will be accepted um, just as you are. There's that you are, you are enough just as you are. Mic drop. That was <laughs> awesome. That's, that's the sermon right there. That That's it. <laughs> Oh, Molly, this has been so much fun. I, um, you know, as we wrap up, I guess just sidebar, I did kind of combine a couple of the questions at the end there, but as we wrap up, I always just like to ask 
um, our guests if there's anything else that they would like to say before we sign off. But I also just want to give you a huge congratulations for finishing your MDiv. And I cannot wait to see uh, what steps are next for you in your ministry and your involvement with the church. And um, I just really appreciate your perspective that you've shared today. And um, I share a lot of your hopes and concerns and uh, your drive forward and mission and just to really, um, I just, I, I can hear so vividly through what you've shared today, um, your desire to help make this church be the best that it can be. Um, and just the acknowledgement that yes, we are small, but we are mighty and we're having really important conversations and doing really important work. So thank you again for uplifting uh, just all of that. And big congratulations. This is an exciting time for you. So with all of that, is there anything uh, left that I didn't ask or that you wanted to share that um, just maybe didn't come out in, in the questions that were asked to you? Just, I think, just reiterating just what a special community I feel like our church is. Um, we have when you look at the trajectory of where we've been historically, like where we've come as a denomination from 1860 to now, um, you know, we've, we've hit a lot of challenges. We have made decisions that were not always popular women in the priesthood, um, open communion, uh, LGBTQ full participation, um, allowing our ministers to perform commitment ceremonies and marriages for same-sex couples, um, you know, ordaining members of the, of the queer community. I think, you know, we've, we've come a long way and we've had decisions that have been divisive at times, but I believe that as divisive and as painful as that process has been, we have opened so many doors for people. And I just hope that in the future, um, the way we as members of community of Christ live our lives and express our love and passion for our church and for Christ and for Christ's mission. I, my hope is that as we, as that expression lives out in our lives, that it shows other people what, what we see in our community and, and how we view what, the value that we put in into living out Christ's mission and um, that, that 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 helps them either find a safe space with us or even just um, shows them that that there are there are places where you know they can find that kind of community themselves. Um, but that our lived witness shows the core of our church and how wonderful we think it is to others. Does that make sense? It does make sense. I really, oh, this has just been so fun. I really uh, appreciate everything that you've shared and your perspective. And it's, Honestly, it's helped me as I've, you know, kind of wrestled with my own sense of call and just this idea of like, oh, this does feel 
little, right? Like is the work we're doing actually doing anything? And so this is good to be reminded that it, it does matter. And that um, even though the world's problems can seem really big and really heavy right now, uh, we are part of a community that is actively trying to make our own communities better, um, our, own, our own neighborhoods better. And that is enough to have hope, right? Like clinging on to that um, is worth it. And it's, it's important. So thank you so much for sharing everything and uh, good luck tomorrow as you graduate and as you prepare for your wedding this summer. I'm just so excited for all the good things that are happening in your life. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Project Zion Podcast. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcast. Stitcher, or whatever podcast streaming service you use, and while you are there, give us a five-star rating. Project Zion Podcast is sponsored by Latter-day Seeker Ministries of Community of Christ. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are of those speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Latter-day Seeker Ministries or Community of Christ. The music has been graciously provided by Dave Hines. 